Yep, so this morning our reading comes from John chapter 7, verses 25 through 52. So you can turn there now. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. As he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, You know me, and you know where I am from. Yet I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. However, many from the crowd believed in him and said, When the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him, and so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent servants to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I am only with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, Where does he intend to go so we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this remark he made? You will look for me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When some from the crowd heard these words, they said, This truly is the prophet. Others said, This is the Messiah. But some said, Surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem, where David lived? So the crowd was divided because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the servants came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who asked them, Why didn't you bring him? The servants answered, No man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, Are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and who was one of them, said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied, Investigate and you will see that no prophet rises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Josh. Good job, bud. Who is Jesus, and what are you going to do with him? That's our question from John chapter 7 today. And honestly, as you look through, as you listen through John chapter 7, it becomes pretty obvious what the main theme is. You saw it in verse 43. The crowds were divided because of Jesus. It's division. Who is this guy, and what are we going to do with this guy? The Pharisees couldn't quite figure it out. They were fighting amongst themselves. The crowd couldn't figure it out. They weren't quite sure what to do with him. Nobody seemed to know who he was, and therefore they had a lot of different opinions about what they were going to do with this Jesus. Maybe, maybe he's a good teacher, a good guy doing good things in the name of the Lord so he can be passively put off and maybe lightly accepted just as somebody who is good. 
Others didn't agree. Some people seemed to say he was like crazy and demon-possessed because he claimed to be something he really wasn't. And if he was claiming something that he wasn't, that means he was likely a deceiver, another false messiah in a long line of men who were coming to grab for money and power and or fame who might lead the people down the road of something worse. A few, a few started asking, started wondering based on what Jesus was saying and what he was doing, if maybe he's the prophet that God promised through Moses in Deuteronomy 18. And maybe he's actually the long-awaited Messiah that God promised through David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Maybe. It was, if he's a good man, if he's a miracle worker, then, well, he doesn't really play much of a role. He can be dismissed or accepted lightly because it doesn't really matter. If he was Messiah or if he was prophet, then we need to like listen to him, submit to him, or if he's the worst of the options, that he's this liar, that he's this deceiver, we need to shut him up. We need to end it because you know what the law says. Anybody who blasphemes against the name of God needs to be killed. And not just that, we might not just wake up the anger of God, but we might wake up the anger of the Romans. And this false messiah may awaken the anger of the Romans. We don't want that. We don't want another massacre on our hands. And so they didn't know what to do with Jesus because they didn't know who he was. A mid-19th century Scottish preacher named John Duncan said it like this, Jesus either, number one, deceived mankind by conscious fraud, two, he himself was deluded and self-deceived, or three, he was divine. There's no getting out of this trilemma. It is unavoidable. The nation of Israel was a house divided on the subject. They couldn't make up their minds. They didn't know what to do with Jesus because they couldn't agree about who Jesus was. Was he a liar? Was he crazy? Or was he actually who he said he was? Few, if any, understood who Jesus really was when he was here. Rather than submit to him as their Messiah from heaven, most people sat in judgment and pride over him. And that's a pretty common response. It's easy for us to read through the scriptures and point to other people and say, yeah, those people, they're, they're dumb. How could they not get it? Didn't they see? Didn't they know? Didn't they get to actually talk with Jesus and see the things Jesus was doing? Man, if, if we could see those things, man, how many people would come to faith? Actually, uh, one phrase that I thought of last week as I was listening to Jim's sermon, he was trying to use a playoff of words of saying that sometimes our challenges come close from home. Playing off that preposition, usually it's like close to home, but he said close from home is where some of our opposition is going to come in terms of our faithfulness to Jesus. And one phrase that I thought, thought of as I sat back there listening is that we claim to be one nation under God. But you and I both know that that is a label by law only many times. The reality is it's a pretty ironic phrase because most of us would probably agree that we are one indivisible united nation by law only. We may be united by law, but we are divided in just about everything else. We are divided by our thoughts on God, our thoughts on governmental laws and political affiliations, I'd be willing to bet that some of us would have an easier time at dinner with somebody who was not a Christian but shared our political party than somebody who was a Christian and didn't. I know for a fact that there's some 
conservative people who regularly question the faith and salvation of those who lean blue. I know for a fact there are some liberal people who question the faith and the salvation of those who lean red. As if salvation is not by grace through faith, but through political affiliation and your personal interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. It's pretty ironic. The phrase one nation under God is ironic because a large portion of our country would rather have the moniker of being under God not attached to them, or in God we trust not attached to their money. Because we aren't a nation under God, we are a nation that is over God. We don't trust God nearly as much as we trust our money. We are a people who believe we are under our own jurisdiction, not God's. We are our own authorities. We must be true to ourselves, authentic to our own experiences, our own feelings, our own chosen identities, rather than some outside force like a government or an outside being like God. After all, God made us with these certain unalienable rights to liberty and the pursuit of happiness, and therefore we must reject any oppressor that might stand in the way of these personal freedoms and pursuit of said happiness. We, like our ancestors, have chosen the forbidden fruit and placed ourselves over God because we wanted to be like God. We're not a nation under God, but we are one that is over him. This ironic phrase has one more turn because we all know, we've heard, we've read, we've seen. The reality is we are one nation that is under God, just like every nation, just like every person, because God in his identity, part of his nature is that he is over all things. There's nothing outside of his control. There's nothing, even if it doesn't want to be, whether that be a person, a home, or a nation, outside of his rule. He is over all. So we, like all other nations, are a nation that is under God, which is the problem of this text. God is who he is, regardless of our opinions about him. And yet we so often put ourselves in judgment over him. We make ourselves the jury, ready to give the verdict on who God is and whether he really is good or not, whether his plan is really acceptable to us or not, whether his timing is good enough for our schedule or not. We place ourselves over God, even though the reality is we are very much under. And John 7 brings all of this to light. And John actually uses the tool of irony to show how little the people really understand Jesus. Look with me in the text. Look at verses 25 through 27. John says this, Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Which is ironic because just a couple verses before, they made fun of him for thinking that people were trying to kill him. It's okay. Verse 26, Yet look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he is the Messiah? And then they talk themselves out of it. They go down that road like, maybe. No, 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 no. We know. We know where this man is from. He's a Galilean. He's from Nazareth. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. This is ironic because they actually don't know where he's from. He's like from eternity past. He's actually from God. He's actually from heaven. And they don't realize it because instead of taking the time to sit under God, to humble themselves, they can't see it because they've set themselves over God in judgment and in pride. Look at the next verse, um, verses 33 through 36. 
Then Jesus said, I am only with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, where does he intend to go? Don't just see this as like they're real curious, interested. No, they're kind of like making fun of him. The way this text is put together, they're they're being very uh, antagonistic toward him in this. Where where does he think he's going to go? You do know, like, we walk like 10, 12 miles max on a day. We're going to find you. We're going to hear. You're, you're not like an inconspicuous guy. Crowds seem to follow you and find you even if you want to go be by yourself. We, we, we know where you're going to go. Where do you think you're going to go that we can't find you? Are you going to go to the diaspora, to the, to the exiles of Israel and teach the Greeks? <laughs> oh, that would be hilarious. Yeah, John's like, yeah, you know why I'm writing this book? Because it's actually gone out to the exiles of Israel. Because actually Jesus' witnesses have gone and taught the Greeks that all people might come to a knowledge of the truth. He's actually saying that I'm going somewhere where you can't find that place where that you don't know that I'm from. I'm going to be going back to the Father. I'm going, going back to the right hand. I'm going to be ruling over this thing that you don't think I rule over. Because I am God in the flesh. I am your king, whether you want to admit it and recognize it or not. That's the reality of the situation. Look in verses 40 through 42. When some from the crowd heard these words, they said, this truly is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where he lived? And so the crowded, crowd was divided. Some wanted to seize him. No one laid their hands on him. Ironic. Again, they don't understand him. They've not taken the time or they've not paid attention to him teaching previously that actually he is both from heaven, from God, and also from the earth. And he's actually born in Bethlehem and then raised in Nazareth. The very criteria that they tried to make to disprove his messianic claims actually verify his identity as being the Messiah. They don't know where he's from. And actually, he was born in Bethlehem. When God put on flesh and incarnated among us, dwelt among us, was born of the Virgin Mary, he came and he was born in Bethlehem, in David's line. He meets the very criteria that they try to use to disprove his identity. And John just sees it as a humor, as a joke. They don't get it. It's right there in front of them, and the tools that they're trying to use is actually tripping them up. Why? Because they really aren't trying to understand who he is. They're placing themselves in judgment over him, not humbly sitting under him, trying to really get to know Jesus and know what they're supposed to do with him. Lastly, this last bit of irony comes from 45 through 52. Then the servants, these temple guards, came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him? Like, we told you to get this guy. We need to question him, number one, to find out more about him. Really, we just need to shut him up because we don't like what he's doing and how he's doing it. Why didn't you bring him? The servants answered, no man ever smoked like this guy. Have you heard him? I mean, you guys are good, but, I mean, come on, that guy. You've heard, no one speaks like this guy. He speaks true words and pointed words with an authority that none of you all seem to carry. They didn't like those kind of things, by the way. Remember, they struggle with pride a lot. When somebody tells you you're not quite as good as this rando from Galilee, 
who's never been trained under your people and never gone down the road that you tell everybody they have to go down? They, they, they didn't handle that well. Here's how they respond. Are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? Hey, we're the ones that know the law, okay? Hey, we've studied it. We've got it memorized. Like, we know the law. And you, you stupid people, those people of the land, they don't know the law. Have, have we followed them? If we were following, then yeah, sure, you should think about it, because obviously we know what's right, because we know the law. And John's just sitting there. Yeah, the guys who say they know the law miss the lawgiver in the flesh. The guys who say they know the law actually miss the one who the entire law was anticipating and pointing toward. Then Nicodemus, our friend from John 3, comes back and says, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? He sticks his neck out a little bit. And I love the story of Nicodemus in the Gospels. He, he comes as a challenger, he's skeptical. He's, he's coming at night, not as to cause some kind of problem publicly, but he still has a disposition of challenge. But then here, he starts to just inch a little bit more toward, like, I think we need to hear this guy out. I think we need to give him a fair shake. He sticks his neck out for Jesus just a little bit. And by the end of the story, by the end of John, we're going to see that Nicodemus, by all intents and purposes, seems to be a faithful follower of Jesus. A pretty interesting story of faithfulness. And then the Pharisees respond, you aren't a Galilean too, are you? Investigate and you will see that no prophet, except for Jonah and Nahum, arise from Galilee. Nobody arises from Galilee who's a prophet. Either they're either not thinking straight or they're trying to prove a different point. But the reality is they just missed it. Why? Like they're supposed to be the ones standing on the stage trying to help everybody understand. They're supposed to be the ones living among the people trying to help the people commune with God and do the right thing, to say the right thing, to acquire God's favor by obeying the law. And yet, here they are, missing the lawgiver. Missing the one the entire law was pointing to. Why? Because they, like so many of us, are sitting in judgment over God. They are sitting in pride, not willing to listen to God in the flesh. All the while, Jesus knew exactly who he was. He knew his purpose. He knew why he had come. He knew what he was planning to do, when he was planning to do it. He was in complete control the entire time. He knew his time. He knew his purpose. He knew his identity. And he wanted them to know it too. They wouldn't listen. They were blind even though they could see. They, they were deaf even though they could hear. Hearing but never hearing. And the reality is Jesus, Jesus was missed not because of his own mistake, but because of their hard-heartedness, their pride, their judgment of God. Let's look and see what Jesus says about himself here in this text. Jesus knows exactly who he says he is. First thing he says is, I know God. And the second one, I come from God. Look at verse 29. Verse 29 says, I know him because I am from him and he sent me. I have a unique communion with the Father that you guys don't understand, that you can't comprehend. I'm trying to tell you where I'm from. You think you know where I'm from? You actually don't know where I'm from. You really don't know much about me. I am from him. I know him. He's making some pretty big claims here. He's, he's having this unique communion with the Father that no one else seems to have. That's a, that's a pretty big claim to divinity. 
He's from God, meaning that he, he's eternal, meaning that at some point he came here and put on flesh and is dwelling among them. This thing that they've been looking forward to forever of God coming and dwelling with his people again, it's happening. I'm from God. It's happening in your midst, and you're not able to see it. Then the third thing is I'm going back to God, verses 33 and 34. I'm going where you're not going to be able to find me, where you can't come. That's where I'm going to go. At some point, as we know, as John knows, Jesus is going to ascend right before the eyes of the apostles. And then he's going to the right hand of God to judge and to rule until the time is appointed for him to come back and to return and to make all things finally right as he destroys sin and destroys death and chaos and disease and evil forever. That's what he's going to do. His purpose is clear. His identity is clear. He knows God. He's from God. He's going back to God. And then this final claim that we see is probably the most beautiful thing from this passage. I probably learned more from this phrase, this comment from Jesus this week than I had studying anything else. And Jesus stands and he says, I am the living water that you need for salvation. I'm the fulfillment of this feast, the fulfillment of this festival. You know, last week we talked about that this was the time period of the Feast of Tabernacle or the uh, Feast of Booze or Feast of Shelters, whatever you want to call it. It's something that was told of long ago, Leviticus chapter 23. This is something you guys need to do on a regular basis every year in order to remember that I delivered you from Egypt and that I provided things for you while you were, um, while you were in the wilderness. I provided shelter for you. I miraculously provided water for you. Remember you complained like a thousand times and one time you said you were dying of thirst so Moses literally hit a rock and water came from it? Okay, I need you to remember that, okay? That was like a big deal. Your grandkids better know about that. And then there's another passage um, that literally condemns, if you do not do this feast every year, I will not send you rain. (laughs) And God is not petty, but that's kind of funny. He's telling him, hey, you need to remember this awesome thing that I did, even though you were punks and jerks, wandering through the wilderness, not being grateful that I just delivered you from slavery, keep giving you like food and water and stuff and shade, and you just need to remember that, and if you don't, I'm not going to give you rain. Like, "Ah, I think that's just great. I think God's a little humorous. I think that's kind of funny. I don't think they probably thought it was that funny, but I do, reading it on this side of uh, of the cross. Um, The reality is they missed Jesus not because of some problem that Jesus had, He was smart enough, I promise you. He knew what he was saying. He knew when he was saying it. He he had such a grasp on how to maneuver through this land, this time, that he he chose to go to the feast at a different time than when everyone else wanted him to because he said, it's not my time yet. It's going to come. I'm choosing mine because I know mine. You You don't understand it. The whole time he's in control. He knows where he's going, what he's doing. He knows who he is, and he knows how he wants people to respond, even though they choose not to. Everybody responds in such varied ways, unique ways. The most beautiful part of this feast is that every day for the first seven days, um, the priests would go to this pool of Siloam, where Jesus actually had healed a guy who was unable to walk, and go to the pool of Siloam, get water, and they would carry it all the way to the temple, to the altar of the temple, And it would be this symbolic act of being grateful for the rain, the life-giving rain that God had just sent the year before. The harvest had just come. They had just gathered all their food, all their produce. And this was supposed to be like the most joyous festival of the entire year. It was actually like forced joy. 
they would not let you be sad. Like, your grandma died, sorry, get over it, this is joy season. Like, it was pretty rough for, for some people. It was prescribed joy to remember the blessings that God had given them. Like, hey, remember, like, God's the one who provides the water and the rain, and we need to be grateful for him. So whatever else you have going on, you need to get to Jerusalem and come thank him for what he's done. And so this, this, this travel from the priest where they would get this water and take it to the to altar is just a reminder. Like, God's the one who provides water, and we should be grateful. We should be grateful for that. It was also a request, like, hey, God, for this next year, as we go into this next year, we need the winter rains. Please, please send them. You're the provider. You said if we do this feast, you'll send it, so you need to do that. Um, And they expected it, and God gave it, because he's a faithful God who delivers on his promises. Um, This was also a season, an intentional time, where they looked forward again to when God would dwell among them. And then on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus comes and he steps forward, stands up, and he proclaims loudly. See that water? That's me. You know the reason you're all joyful right now? Because God provides you with life-giving water? That's, that's me. This festival, this whole thing that you guys are doing, that I told you to do a long time ago, it's all pointing to me. I'm actually the fulfillment of all of this. Yeah, I'm actually the one who is fulfilling the promises God has made in the past. And yeah, I am the prophet, just not in the way that you expected the prophet to come. And, and I am the Messiah, just not in the way you expected the Messiah to come or what you expected the Messiah to do. I am the one who came, God in the flesh. I am the one who is not just the provider of the water, but he is also the provision. Think about that. They all believe, they all recognize that God was the one who provided them with the rain, the life-giving water. But what they didn't expect, that God himself would put on flesh to come dwell among them and actually be the provision. They, They knew he was the provider and they were thankful that he was the provider, but he wasn't just the provider, he was the provision. He was not just the one that was going to make the sacrifice, but he was the sacrifice. That Jesus was actually both the priest and the lamb. That Jesus himself was both the giver and the gift. That in Jesus, God was fulfilling his promises to not just dwell among his people, but that through him, God himself, he would give everyone an opportunity to come and drink from this bottomless pit of love, this bottomless pit of forgiveness, that anyone who wants to drink from Jesus can come and find peace and find life. It's ironic that Jesus came and he was such a dividing rod. He even says, I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. I'm going to divide households. That's just reality. I'm going to divide nations. Uh, You're going to have to deal with me, and not everybody's going to agree with who I am. He's intentionally, knowingly going to be a dividing rod, but that dividing rod is simultaneously the peace bringer. He's the one, the only one who can bring peace, uh, peace to our souls. He's the only one that can bring peace to households, that can bring peace to nations, the only one that will bring peace to this world, the dividing rod, the one who is not just the provider but the provision, not just the gift giver but the gift itself, not just the priest but the sacrifice, the lion and the lamb. Simultaneously, he is all these things. He, he's more than they expected, but he is exactly, he is exactly what God promised. 
Look with me at Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. I will give thanks to you, although you were angry with me, Lord. Your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Indeed, God is my salvation. He's not just the gift giver. He is the gift itself. I will trust him and not be afraid. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He has put on flesh, dwelled among us, lived a sinful life, died in my place for my sins, really died, and then really raised, having victory over death, victory over sin, so that you and I could become one with him, family with him, united with him. He has become my salvation. You will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. You will need something that will no longer let you be thirsty again. And that's no water you can get from any well here. It's only through me. I'm the one, the water, the life-giving water that is eternally good, that eternally brings salvation, that you'll never need again. You'll never need the rain again because I am that eternal salvation, that eternal life that is the living water. Give thanks to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make his works known among the peoples. Declares, declare that his name is exalted. I'm the one that is the water that leads to salvation. He says this in Ezekiel chapter 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone, your heart of judgment, your heart of pride, and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Hey guys, I'm the one who fulfills what God said through Ezekiel. Ezekiel says in chapter 47, this was water flowing from the temple. This chapter, this first part of this chapter describes this water that's flowing beautifully and wonderfully from the temple and all these trees are growing alongside it and these trees keep producing fruit in and out of season. And then one of the cool things that happens is that actually as this water flows from the temple into the salty sea, what does that, what usually happens when salt water combines with fresh water? Hey, which one wins? The salt water wins. The ocean wins when the river comes and displaces the water into it. Actually, the ocean wins. It becomes salty. It makes the non-salty salty. And not with this river. This river is different. This river, actually, as it enters into the, the salty water, it makes everything fresh. It makes it clean. When it enters the sea, the sea of foul water, the water of the sea becomes fresh. Since the water will become fresh, there will be life everywhere the river goes. That's me. That's me. I'm the one that takes foul things and makes them fresh. I'm the one that takes hard hearts and makes them soft. I'm the one that takes proud, arrogant people and make them humble and submissive. It's me. I'm the only one who can give you this eternal living water. It's me. Jesus is the water of salvation, the provider and the provision, and he knows exactly who he is. And he says as much in John 4 and in John 7. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. 
So John's begging the question of the reader, and he's begging the question of us. Who is Jesus, and what are you going to do with him? Who is Jesus, and what are you going to do with him? And the reality is, as we get to move into our time of reflection, some people in here have not believed Jesus is who he says he is. Just haven't. You've either not thought about it that much, which is a conversation I've had with quite a few people lately. Just haven't thought about it that much. I need to think about that. Maybe you have thought about it. Maybe you've, in your past, had something happen that's caused you to reject who Jesus is. Really, there's only a few options for you. You can, like the crowds, passively dismiss Jesus as some good guy who did things back in the day, another religious teacher among who knows how many other religious teachers. You could maybe be like the Pharisees who hear Jesus and reject his claims and would rather him be dead than have anything to say over your life. Maybe you're like Nicodemus. You're, you're kind of quasi-interested about Jesus and you just need to know more. You've got more questions. That's okay. I know people that have answers. I know a book that has answers that can point you in the right direction. At the end of the day, the reality is all of us will have to make a decision about Jesus, about who he is. Some of you might be like the Samaritan woman who after one conversation, one hearing of the gospel, and one uh, revelation as the Spirit pierces her heart, runs into her hometown and says, I found him. I've got him. It's the Messiah. This is him. I believe it. Y'all need to believe it. Come on out. Let's go talk to him. And tons of people come and decide to follow Jesus. This, this Samaritan woman, an unlikely character in the story, comes and converts however many of her friends and family and people who didn't like her actually probably all that much. I don't know where you are at. You know where you're at. God definitely knows where you're at. But I do know this, that there is only one way that you will have hope in this life and in the life to come, and that is through the eternal waters of salvation through Jesus. That's it. And so if you don't know who Jesus is, I need you to think about it. I need you to ask the questions. I need you to talk to people who do, who can point you in the right direction. For those of you who have chosen to follow Jesus because you believe he is who he says he is, one of the greatest gifts that you can ever give somebody is the gift of telling them about who Jesus is. You have the most powerful, <laughs> the most powerful words in the world at your disposal. And so many of us get so scared and nervous to talk to people about Jesus because you don't talk about politics, religion, or money. And Justin did all three today, so I better not come back here. Um, the reality is, you have life. And it's not just something that is for you, though it is for you. It's, it's something that you can give to others. And actually, like, part of our purpose as the church is to give that gift to others. There's no greater thing that you could give somebody, no greater amount of love that you could show somebody than to offer them the hope and the truth and the good news and the peace that is the reality of who Jesus is. Some of us are scared because we don't know how people are going to respond to us. Some of us are scared because we don't think we know what to say. Can I just tell you, hopefully give you a little bit of freedom, like Jesus knew what to say and they still rejected him. Jesus knew how to say it. He never was at a loss for words, I promise you. And they still didn't believe him. His own family thought he was crazy. 
until like he resurrected from the dead, by the way. You can do that. I think you know who Jesus is. I think you have the ability to at least ask somebody, who do you think Jesus is? Here's what the Bible says about who he is. What do you think about that? That's it. Just a couple simple sentences that may change someone's life now and forever. The greatest gift that you could ever give is sharing the truth of who Jesus is and giving them the opportunity to respond the way God wants them to respond. It just may change their life forever. So as you reflect here for just a moment, um, the instructions are clear. Pray through this. Think through this.